Hi everyone, welcome to season two, episode two of Some Drivel. I'm joined this week by an absolute legend of the industry, an actor, director, voice actor, and a genuine hero of mine, uh, Mr. Jeff Steitzer. Jeff, thank you so, so much for jumping on this podcast with me this week. Um, My it pleasure. Is, yeah, genuinely, it is an honor to be talking to you. Um, I feel like, I kind of feel like off the bat, I need to just sort of set parameters. And those parameters are myself and my dearest friends that I gr I've grown up with, essentially, have been murdering each other to your dulcet tones <laughs> for, for, for a long time. Um, and I think, I mean, obviously, I want, to, I want to unpack and I want to discuss your role with the Halo franchise and how it's become this sort of like indelible identifying aspect of your career. Oh, I've got a good story about that too. Oh, oh now, now we're talking. <laughs> um, but I wanted to kick off as well because I, I think it's so important to you know, discuss the context and the arc of your career, particularly in relation to theater. And sure. when you look at this last 12 months for a lot of the industry, it's either been indefinitely postponed or just simply ground to a halt. But I saw recently you popped up uh, in an online play, I believe, was it A Christmas Carol that you did? Yes, I think it was. Yeah, and I, I wanted to, to get your perspective on the idea of adapting something like that, where you've got the, the freedom and canvas of a space and having to distill it down to, was it, was it done on Zoom? Was it done like this? No, we actually we rehearsed on Zoom, and then when we actually recorded, we went into the theater where they had set up all these sort of booths that people would go into by themselves and they, you know, you'd be, we'd record for a while. And then at a, at a certain point they would come in and clean it up. And, you know, we did it over the course of just a couple of days. I had to be in and out pretty quickly because I then shot a teeny tiny bit in a Netflix film and I had to go down to Portland. Um, wow. So they had to rush me through and I kept saying, you know, I don't have to be here for the Cratchit scene where Scrooge is just, watching no one's gonna know i've left the room you know why don't we just focus where i'm talking but that's the biggest thing that happened honestly is that in all the different things i did like that the people who were in charge of it didn't have very much experience with any sort of audio stuff at all right so they did not understand it. it's like you know you could just bring jeff in have him do all of his stuff three times and then put it all together you know and come up with a better version right. of him so they, were they, they thinking that. sort of were they looking at it like sort a of play like a, like a like, play like a linear performance as opposed absolutely to not only that but the uh, fellow who was directing we finally had to suggest that maybe he should you know we should turn off our cameras so that because you know how it is when you're looking at somebody and there's all this right. expressiveness you're not necessarily really hearing how they sound so he had to be coaxed into not looking at us just listening to us oh wow in order to understand what he was getting which kind of upends upends any assumption you have of the discipline of, of what that of what that experience should be like you know if it was performed in the traditional sense so did you did you find there was an element of that, that you almost had to kind of subvert things that were kind of set in stone in terms of your approach? Or was it, did you feel like it was kind of more, no, this is business as usual, except it's just going to be sent out in a different format? No, I think the biggest problem was that, you know, because I've spent so much time in a recording booth, you know, I've done audio dramas, I've done audio books, I've done a lot of commercials and all kinds of stuff like that. 
I'm pretty used to this. And the thing I tend to hear most often, which is a good thing to hear, is, you know, pick it up, move it along, you know. Right. Because I okay. will kind of sort of just <laughs> wallow. <laughs> so so that was something I that would have been nice to hear in this particular instance. Sure, um, yeah. You know, when they edited the whole thing together, sound effects kind of overwhelmed some of the talking. They went crazy. And at one point... And the first scene, which takes place in the counting house, there was this weird noise. And it was like, what the fuck is that? And I realized it was the sound of a fire. And I thought, it's Ebenezer Scrooge. He doesn't waste money yeah. on coal. And it wasn't even a coal fire. It was obviously a wood fire. It's like, right. you know, don't you understand the, the, the stuff you're sending out? That's all we have to make the pictures. Of course. And so it needs will, to be right. And that, yeah, and that support could be enough story. to break that reality, right? Especially if it's totally, something where, totally. you know, yeah. and, you know, you're doing an adaption of something that's extremely well known. You know, if, if the Muppets have done it, people know it. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Well, of course, you know, there's, I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I'm not a patch on Michael Caine. Nobody is. That, that version <laughs> is easily the best. Although some of my friends would argue for Mr. Magoo, but not me. It's yeah. the Muppets. It is debate, <laughs> but then no, when you're throwing, really in, when you're throwing in crackling fireplaces. Come on, guys, we know we need to we need to sort this I know, out. I know. It was just it, there was so much stuff like that, and it was kind of like you know you sort of have to go. You're not directing; you're just playing this part. Mm. But it it you know it it the thing that was interesting too is I think it was a bit of a learning curve for a lot of people who went online because you'd see so sure. often instances where. You know, uh, there was a, a very interesting production of the Inspector General from a theater in New York called Red Bull that had been sort of adapted by a fellow I know, Jeff Hatcher. And there were all these people who were recreating the roles they'd played on stage. And it was interesting because you had a large portion of the cast who were way too big for this and were like, you know, mm. peaking all the time. And then you had a lot of other people who thought it was more like a film. So they were kind of like not doing anything at all. I'm not splitting the difference. It's Google, right. And then every once in a while, there'd be somebody you go like that. Somebody tell them like that. But nobody knew, you know, nobody had. And most people had not done this kind of work and they hadn't done what would have probably been the smartest thing to do, which was go back and immerse themselves in as many radio dramas from the 30s, 40s, and 50s as they could, just to get a sense of, oh, this is how it's been done. That's the style. That's how the approach yeah. to take. Because that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the thing as well. I was curious about that, given everything you've just said, given the the sort of the very specific requirements of having to deliver a performance in that way, in that context. Right. Throughout this last sort of, I suppose you sort of say 18 months, I guess, has have you been able to continue working or has it been sort of like moments like that? You've been able to deliver very bespoke constructed performances, but other things have gone on pause or have you been able to sort of not business as usual, but been able to at least continue doing what you do? Well, here's what I'll say about that. There were a couple of things. First of all, I'm a lot older than I like to think I look. So <laughs> I, I have social security and pensions, which means I don't have to work. Right. Um, but I kind of like to work. So unlike so many of my younger friends, my heart bled for them because they mm. were really, you know, in trouble. I, you know, I can, I could pay my rent. I could buy my food, obviously, um, you can see, um, uh, but, um, 
<laughs> you know, so that wasn't really a problem, but I still managed to do some work along the way. Every once in a while, somebody, I did go in at one point during the pandemic. What was it called? There was a game that I did, Plants versus Zombies. Is that what it's called? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and I was just, I was just making noises. You know, I was in a booth that had been scrubbed down and everything. We all wore masks. And it was like, you know, I came in, did it. It was like, thanks a lot. And it's so nice to sort of see you. See a human and then being. I was on my way. <laughs> But what was I was telling you earlier about my story about the pandemic, mm. I uh, had decided my daughter at that time lived in New York City and my son lives here. And I wanted to try and see them both uh, equally if I could. Yeah. So I had decided I still have a, a voiceover agent in New York that I work with. But, he, you know, he's always encouraging. He said, come back to New York. Come back. And I thought, okay, I, I will. I'm going to go back and I'm going to spend three months in New York. I got a real sweet deal and a place to live. Everything was going to work out well. So, you know, I remember getting on the plane. Some of my friends said, are, are you sure this is such a good idea? This is mid-March. And I'm going, well, I'm, I, yeah, I think. I, no one said we can't fly, have they? Are, are we? Uh, I don't know. So I climb on a fairly empty plane, and that was should have been my first clue. Sure, yeah. Uh, oh, this the is tumbleweed kinda, up the this aisle. Is, this is very. I mean, seriously, no problem with service on that flight. <laughs> yeah. And then we got to New York, and I went up to where I was staying, and that was in the evening. That was, I believe, on a Wednesday, I think. And the next morning, I woke up, and all the theaters had shut down. And not only that, but I had a friend who had got, got tickets for Carnegie Hall and uh, uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center and all these things, oh, all canceled, all canceled. Um, and I got in touch with my voiceover agent and I said, well, what are you folks going to do? He said, we don't really know. And then, of course, within a couple of days, nothing was happening. So here I am yeah. in New York in a strange apartment. And even better, there was a roommate, a young woman who, um, when I arrived, I'd been told her boyfriend might be there, but he wasn't. And I said, well, where's your boyfriend? I thought he was going to be here when she met me at the door. And she said, oh, well, he he's not feeling too well. He thinks he might have uh, been exposed to COVID. And I'm sitting four feet away from this one going, excuse me? Yeah, you know, taking what one's about pardon. You? Yeah. you know, she'd been seeing him fairly regularly. And it turned out then, yes, indeed, he did have it. You know, but it was okay. Anyway, a week of, of being in New York and everything got so spooky. Literally one week after I arrived, I booked a flight and I went home. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be in an apartment. It might as well be mine where I've yeah. got all my garbage that I enjoy. You know, I've got a good TV and I've got all the books I love to read. <laughs> so that's going to be a better deal. Plus, you know, I thought if anything happens, my doctor is here. I'm a mile away from a hospital. Absolutely. Nothing yeah. did. Everything was great. Um, and unlike my daughter, who was had a really hard year, so much so that she ended up moving with her husband to Buffalo, which ended up being a very good thing. Wow. But, you know, I had a car. I could get out and drive around yeah. by myself. She couldn't do that. So, so many other people had it so much harder than i did i have no complaints sure um well and you any... you were very lucky in the that sort of confluence of timing that you had there where it could have quite easily ended up with you being stuck in new york for that three months 
Absolutely. Um, you made or the, you longer. Know, yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been a very extended stay, which of course then has not only financial implications, but then the added emotional stress of then continued time away from family, you know, so yeah. that the fact that that you were able to make that call in a timely fashion got out of oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely the smart play for sure. So that's my story about the pandemic. That's bonkers. Yeah. So, is then, that wild? so then from that, then you've come back home, you've largely yep. obviously spent then the year in, in Seattle. Um, well, the thing I to- always say about this, just for what it's worth, is that I have spent my entire life pretty much as an actor. And like most actors, you know, you know about us when we do something, but there's so much more time when we're not doing anything at all, you know, where we're not acting, where we're sitting around. So the idea of being, you know, sort of in my apartment for months at a time doing nothing was not unusual for me. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, the only thing that was odd about it was that when you would go outside, it was always a little traumatic. And of course you couldn't see any of your friends, which is what I mostly go outside to do. But then Zoom, you know, Zoom, sort of filled the gap and it was well, a big difference this became like the the lifeline for many people especially if they were in you know assisted living or they had um they were you know being had specific care needs you know this became that point of connection for a lot of people um Absolutely. and i think the implications not just for people's careers but the the emotional stress of that is quite yeah. something i think oh um, yeah oh so it's, absolutely it's, and, and i suppose also for someone like yourself who has this you know incredible uh body of work this library of creativity that you've done which you yourself acknowledge you know that there are moments where there's always you know as an actor has there's peaks and troughs that there's moments where you are going to be um in that downtime between gigs um absolutely that do you think that do you feel like you've been able to with obvious worldwide considerations you know aside for a moment do you feel like you've been able to continue putting out your art and doing what you love in this time or, or has there been do you feel it has been somewhat restricted? Um, actually, it's it's been a, sort of a, a different thing, which is that it, it has allowed me to kind of look at my artistic life and really examine what I want to continue to do. Mm, because one of the things I realized, you know, I haven't been able, to, I've been able to be on stage now since 2019, and I realized pretty quickly I didn't really miss it. So I think the odds that I will ever go back on stage are slim to none for many, many reasons. Um, the world has changed so much in my lifetime. Um, and it's something you don't want to go on and on about because, you know, you're already as an old person, fairly tedious to most people who are <laughs> young. And, uh, but I, when I was growing up, I was uh, living in the Midwest, and our local regional theater was the Tyrone Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, named after the great Irish director who basically helped make, you know, Olivier a star and, you know, worked with Gielgud, and Alec Guinness started the Stratford Festival in Canada. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, basically his design was what they used at Chichester, and, you know, amazing person. And I actually got to see the last thing he directed at the Guthrie Theater, which was, you know, something that should not have worked on the thrust stage, mm. Uncle Vanya. And it was one of the great experiences of my theater-going life. Fantastic. So back in the days, I would go to the Guthrie Theater and I would see, I can remember literally seeing a production of Cyrano de Bergerac with a cast of 35 people. You will never see that large a cast outside of a musical, even there, 
you know, they're finding more and more ways to sort of boil it down. Of it's just never going to happen. And a company, a theater like the Guthrie, which was committed to doing the greatest plays ever written, at, at least what at the time people thought were the greatest plays ever written. Yeah. They may not think that now, but um, performed by a resident ensemble of actors who worked with each other season after season, much like the RSC kind yeah. of did and doesn't so much do now to the same extent, um, or the way Olivier's company worked when he was running the national. That's what we had and in rotating rep. So when I was a college student in Minneapolis, I remember I'd think, oh, I want to go to the Guthrie tonight. And I think, well, well I wonder what's on. And it's like, nah, who cares? You know, and I would just go and take my chances. And, and yeah, why not? It must be so fascinating for you to be able to compare the the prevalence of that kind of work and how how well regarded it was and seeing how theater has evolved over that time. Completely. You know, it's especially when you then apply that to a modern context and even more so whatever theater looks like now, you know, in 2021. Or will look like if and when right. it comes back, you know, it's I, yeah. really hard to know. Well, this is the, th I mean, so I, uh, day job for me is drama teacher. I'd written and yeah. directed a play. Um, a week before it was due to be performed, oh. we in the UK hit our first lockdown and wow. it was canceled. Um, it wasn't wow. postponed. It was, that was it. Um, and that is, wow. that, that's always going to be a little something where I know there was a unfinished business in a sense. I know there's something there and it was, it was youth theater. So that's, that's my day job. So right. um, it, was a, it was an original piece and it got, it had to hit the brakes on it, oh. you know? So, but so, but I fully understand though, that especially coming out of what, like what I'd done where I'd run my own thing. I knew that right. had a finite time. I knew that there was a, uh, a very specific period of time where I knew my heart would be in running my own drama school. And right. I think, and I was curious then from something you said earlier, do you find that with the time you've been afforded at home that you've then considered your work and your career and everything you've done? And, and like you said, you said, said before that you were thinking maybe that might be it in terms of acting performance on stage. Had anything, yeah, I, yeah. had anything specific kind of, promote like sort of motivated oh yeah oh yeah 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 okay. yeah yeah. i'd done a series of plays um before the uh pandemic and there was there were a number of things that happened one of them was is that many of the plays just weren't very good quite frankly sure. and you know i think any actor is used to doing a certain amount of heavy lifting when the play is weak you know it's like you still got to make it look like there is something there even if, it, still if work. it's not there and that gets tiring after a while you know, um, my love I have discovered and what I sort of w went to school to really, you know, immerse myself in was the classical repertoire and nobody is doing it. Or if they are doing it, they're doing it in modern dress. They're cutting it to shreds. They're adding contemporary jokes. I just I couldn't watch um, uh, um, Nick Heitner's dream that he did because it made no sense. And the only time they were getting laughs were when they were doing ad libs that had been added right. to the text. And I thought, okay, but you this know, this kind of become like a sort of weird Frankenstein of it's, what it it's a very odd thing. Yeah, I mean, and there's this. I guess it's now an sort of an accepted notion that nobody has any interest in the past. I think, well, that seems strange, but yeah. that's that's what a lot of people believe, and. Um, so that was, you know, there are those issues, a lot of the modern work, you know, 
it, it just I wasn't really vibrating with it. A lot of people do, and that's as it will and should be. You know, I think about when I was coming of age in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, there were all these people, these companies doing wild experimental work. Charles Ludlam was doing the ridiculous theatrical company. He did The Mystery of Irma Vep, was his most commercial and best known play. His other stuff was like insane. Um, but you had the open theater and the living theater and you had La Mama and you had all these amazing companies, Mabu Mines, all this kind of stuff. And we all lost our minds. Richard Foreman of the Ontological Hysteric Theater, Lee Brewer, you know, just all of this stuff, you know, we thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I have no mm. doubt that people from a decade or two before were going, oh, these kids today, they, you know, what a <laughs> lot of garbage. And a lot of it hasn't, you know, necessarily survived uh, the years, but it's like, I think that's what happens. So I look at a lot of what's going on and I'm sort of going, well, okay, you not know, ticking, but ticking it's not for me, you know. Right. But and do you it, think then? Do you think then that modern theatre has lost an element of that eccentricity and that experimental approach? Is there something where it's kind of? It's it's different. It's different. Okay. You know, even when I was growing up, all of my peers and I were a little bit too. We were, in many instances, as influenced by film, right, as we were by the stage. So I can remember literally one point asking the lighting designer to create a Steven Spielberg, you know, sky. And I thought, are you insane? <laughs> you know, like when when the spaceship comes through and in close and I wanted that. And it's like, uh-huh. What up that I'll just I'll have that for yeah, you. Yeah, I can imagine I'll... I can imagine that guy being like, okay, I'll get right on that. <laughs> exactly. Know? Exactly. <laughs> But I think a lot of people, you know, of my generation were very influenced by the visuals. If you look at a lot of the work that came out, mm. um, I think that sometimes it went a little bit crazy um, from a design point of view. Um, very often directors didn't and still I don't think necessarily do know how to talk to actors. I think actors have been somewhat displaced uh, when it comes to the theater. Um, I think a lot of people have contempt for them. And of course, I think it's why people actually go because that's what they connect with are the actors. Right. Personally, that's what I think. I but would think that. But I've also been a director. I mean, I've directed over 180 professional productions over my right. career, along with everything else. So it's like, you know, I sort of know both sides of the fence. And I think, you know, I'd rather have eight actors and no director than eight directors and no actors because i know sure. which one's going to you know which one's going to give you a, an evening in the theater this is something that has come up a lot in the conversation across entertainment when it doesn't have to be exclusively games theater it could be across anything film tv this notion of too many cooks in the kitchen mm. yeah it comes up time and again whether it's whether that's represented by studio interference whether that's by uh, executive producers leveraging perhaps beyond their initial job role, you know, not not trusting that their creative team to deliver on their vision. Yeah. Um, and I think for someone like yourself, you've been able to track that arc throughout your career and see that evolution. Um, and that's actually well, something that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. Um, recently, you've uh, there's been uh, some coverage of uh, a cameo that you did uh, for someone. Um, where they were specifically asking about your thoughts, your feelings, your take on the issue of trans rights. Yes. And you <clears> ended <throat> up in your imitable Halo 
god voice of multiplayer awesome announcer <laughs> uh said the the phrase the phrase which by the way trans right there's a team of modders trying to get it into halo on the pc version right now which is uh, darn. fabulous um no. and I, I was it was in, something you said earlier that really struck a chord with me where you said about how you've seen the world change oh yeah and i was curious if you could because it has it, you, you the response by the way has been like just overwhelmingly lovely <laughs> to what you said and the sentiment that you shared well i'm glad i think that's that's good yeah and I, I was wondering if you could speak more to that and where that comes from this idea of you wanting to basically just tell it like it is and be and have that genuine honesty well I, first you've got to remember i was booked by uh the person who who i did that uh for and they asked me to say trans rights and the thing at the end about you know trans people you're all unfreaking believable it's like of course i'll say that why would i not say that i mean you know i balk at saying things that are pornographic you know um i might balk at things that i considered you know to be dangerous or sure. crazy or whatever but in this particular interest what i said you know i'm very very well aware as an almost 70 year old white male what a privileged life i have led and um over the years i keep getting these amazing wake-up calls from people you know who've had to sort of slap me across the face and go it's not like that for everybody because you know you know what you know you everything you you know your view of the world is based on your personal experience and i remember being in college back in the 1970s i was walking across the campus at night after seeing a film you know in one of the film clubs or something and there was a poster i was just you know wandering along and i looked up and there was a poster for something some event called take back the night and i thought what take what and I looked a little more closely, and of course, it was for the you know the at that point just emerging women's movement. Yeah, and I didn't understand what the phrase meant. I quickly found out, and of course, that was you know the first probably of many many times when I realized that a lot of people's experiences are much different than mine. I've never been terribly nervous about going almost anywhere. Yeah, I'm always careful when I walk around. I lived in New York for six years. So, <laughs> you know, you learn that there are certain neighborhoods you probably won't go into. But, you know, I I did not have the experience that a woman would have crossing campus. I did not understand that. And then I did. And then years later, shockingly, I was talking to a friend of mine who's black, a wonderful actor. And he said that he had had the same experience just walking home from the theater, which right. was three blocks away. And I thought, well, but what? Uh, and again, it was sheer stupidity on my part and not really ever having just gotten into somebody else's skin in the way that we're as as actors supposed to do. Of course, yeah. It is about, so, it is about empathy and understanding. Absolutely. And, and literally walking in those other people's skins and shoes and understanding what it's like. Um, one of the things that's been most incredible about this past year and a half or even a little bit longer of course has been the fact that there has been this explosion of events mm. and populations all of whom want to be heard who want to be seen and it just seemed to me that you know i'm happy 
as myself, I don't represent anything else except my own opinion. I am unbelievably happy to say absolutely, you know, to yeah. trans people and black people and Hispanic people and Asian Americans, uh, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say that some years ago I directed a, a musical about the Asian American experience because, you know, I would know so much about that. Um, I mean, and, and there was another sort of a wake up call. We went out to supper one night and I was talking to the actors. And I said, well, you should be able to play any, you know, any role. They were like, Jeff, that's just not the way it works. I was like, really? Right. You know, but you're so good. Yeah. Anyway. So, you know, it, it, it's that kind of a thing. Um, I think that people should have, Everybody should have the chance to be the best them they can be. Absolutely. And anything that gets in the way of that, I think is reprehensible and has to be resisted, um, even if it's something as simple as just trying to talk to that person right. who thinks that they don't have those rights, you know, yeah, and understand where are you coming from? Why do you believe that? What's it to you? But that's, you know? the, that's the problem. I think you've actually summarized the issue quite succinctly there, which is that you acknowledge that there might be previously an ignorance. But when people yeah. acknowledge it and have at least the self-awareness to say, I don't know enough about this, they yeah. then don't take that next step and go, yeah, but I want to understand. I want yeah. to empathize and I want to be able to relate to that experience. Um, that's something I know I've had to really face up to i've been afforded opportunities in my life i know that other people wouldn't have had and have had yeah. have had a harder time because of it um yes i think where for someone like you though to do what you did i understand that the cameo was a specific request in that sense there was a trend no the, everything else i said about that was basically you know the way i felt and what was on my mind but that's the yeah. difference that's the difference is that some people would look at that purely as oh this is a quote i'm reading but I think where I think it's resonated with so many people from someone like yourself is yeah. that you added the context of your own belief to it. Yeah. And that, to, at least to me, as someone who, who saw that, as someone who really appreciates you as a human and as the work you do, I think that truth resonated and clearly was appreciated by many because I think so many people are afraid to speak that honestly for fear of alienating some theoretical portion of an audience that really you don't want to be chasing after because of their their own take on it and their, right. perhaps their opposite view which isn't as understanding and inclusionary so um i think really really where i was going with that was thank you because that was a it was a lovely thing you did and i think it's just it's great it'll be great for people to hear you speak to that um so and actually i've given myself a wonderful segue there uh, because speaking be your job. So um, looking at, obviously at an iconic role like you have as the Halo announcer in, uh, in the now ever-expanding franchise, um, a role that you've played for, what, 20, 20 years 20 now? years. It's 20 years. This year was 2001. This, I can't believe it, but yeah, it's 2001. I, I just... I, <laughs> I just like had a flashback to puberty <laughs> just then like just <laughs> just suddenly me too <laughs> i was that young it's aged me it's, yeah. i don't really having, I sh i'm actually about 27 yeah, no, having a voice older. that baritone has just <laughs> i've had that since my voice changed it's right you know for what it's worth it's like well that's just the way i sound use, so. use what you got <laughs> but i told um, you i had a story about that and the story please. is 
Yeah, I, uh, I actually um, went in. I remember the day I went in. I remember the day I auditioned for this because I drove day from one. Seattle. I mean, yeah, before it, nobody knew what it was. It okay. wasn't Halo then because it was just a game yeah. Microsoft was doing. We didn't know anything about it. They couldn't tell me anything about it at my agents uh, here in Seattle. I was like, oh, okay, fine. So I got in my car and I drove to Bellevue, which is across Lake Washington from Seattle. And you know, I found parking. I went in and, you know, you have to sort of go through all these hallways and be vetted and stuff. And so I walked in and there was a booth there. And uh, I think Marty might have been there the guy who created the game from Bungie, yeah. who was the head of Bungie at that point. And um, so they gave me the copy and they said, well, you know, try, try, a, a, try an alien. And I was just like, <laughs> whatever it was. And, you know, could you scream and stuff for it? It was like, Aah! you know, people. And they said, well, here, now read this stuff from Master Chief. And it was like, oh, okay, so I was reading Master Chief and I was doing all this kind of stuff. And, um, and after a while, they said, "Right, thanks a lot." And I left, and I went, "All right," like you do with every audition. It's like, yep. well, that's never, that's, that's never a wrap, you know. <laughs> that's that's done. It's you know, it's in the rearview mirror, heading that way fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got a call like the next day, and they said, "Yes, you've been cast as Master Chief." Okay. And I was like, "Cool." what's that? You know? And it's like, well, it's the central character of this game. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I found out that my good friend, Jen Taylor, who I knew was playing Cortana and other actors yeah. in Seattle. Cause it was all local actors in the first game. There were none of the wonderful people like Keith David or any of those mm. folks, never none of them in that first game. It was just the local folks. I thought, okay. So, you know, time passes. I'm waiting to find out when I'm going to be called in to record and I'm not hearing anything. And I'm not hearing anything and i'm getting a little bit nervous about that because jen's been in she's done all of her stuff and so i finally went to my agent and i said what's going on with this and she said i'll find out she called got back she said uh well they had second thoughts because marty doesn't know you um he you know liked what you did but they decided to go back to somebody they knew from when bungie was in chicago steve downs Right. So I'm not even sure Steve knows that. We're supposed to be doing a virtual event this fall, and I I might even bring it up. I'm, Ooh, that I'm could be, be a, a saucy little uh, nugget to throw well, in I there. Mean, I, and, and, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And they said, well, they want you to be the announcer for the multiplayer version. It was like, well, what's that? You know, and then Jay Wineland, who was the sound designer that I worked with in that, uh, uh, a friend as well as, you know, a wonderful designer said, Jeff, people are going to hear you way more than anything else in the game. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> Actors are so easily appeased. Yeah. And that's how that all began. And then the first, you know, session that I went in, because it was the very first one, I think I sort of did that voice for four hours straight, maybe a couple of times in several days. And I mean, it just, you know, I was coughing up blood by the time it was over because yeah. it's. Such I mean, that a horrible, is a that is a oh, it's horrible, exercise horrible. In stamina, isn't it? No, like it's yeah, it's just ridiculous because, you know, I place it. If you were to growl, if you go, well, it's like right growl, there. That's where it is. Right. That's where it comes from, and then I lower my voice so it's even down there, and then I add the attitude. You know, it's like. Un-freaking-believable. Yeah. I'm, glad, well, I'm, glad I'm glad you mentioned the attitude because I'd always read, because I've heard so many versions of those lines, that there's definitely some times where you sneak in like, 
the announcer sometimes sounds annoyed with the medal he's given. <laughs> a little bit. I, I don't know about that. I, you know, I, I maybe I did. I don't know. Um, it was weird because the other thing about the evolution of the character is that early, and I, I actually reached out to Jay. He's on a vacation, so he didn't get back to me. I've been trying to figure out. It's like, well, where, where did the voice even come from? I mean, sure. somebody must have said, when you walk in, can you play this like he's really tough or so i don't know mm. what the direction i can't remember where it came from all i know is that's what i did and they were like great that's and, what we were looking know, for <laughs> 20 years later i'm still doing it but yeah early on it seemed to me that it was even more sort of like this you know i, I could be wrong but it seems like that was sort of what it was and then as everyone knows at a certain point bungie had a falling out with microsoft and sold them halo and walked away with enough money to start a new uh, yeah. franchise, which was Destiny. And 343 took over. And when 343 took over, several things happened. Um, one of the first things they did was they tried to get rid of us all. Complete recast. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And in fact, yeah, that, uh, uh, well, I can't really tell Jen's story, but it was particularly awful. Because right. they had to then bring her back in because the person they had just didn't work out. Oh, well, they had to reapproach because this is what played. I heard about. This is what I I mean, I heard about this later. It was like, oh, well, again, it's like I'm so oblivious. And I wasn't like <laughs> I wasn't keeping busy. So it was like, oh, that'd be not that'd be stupid and terrible. And then, of course, it didn't happen. And uh, obviously, I'm glad it didn't. But then we started, you know, when we went into the studio, I started getting a very different kind of direction than I had been used to. You know, I would mostly be asked to do pickups or variations. Mm. And, you know, uh, what happened was initially I kind of felt that I was being micromanaged um, and that they pulled back the voice quite a bit to the point where after a couple of the games had come out and people said, bring back Jeff Steitzer. He's no, it's like this new guy's no good. And it was like, um, oh, I hate to say still it, but it's still me, still me. And we were in a session one day and I said, um, just out of curiosity, I'm, I'm having a little trouble understanding what it is we're looking for here. Would you mind if we went back and listened to some of the stuff from like, I don't know, the first game or something? So they put it on. It was like, oh, you could see, you know, it was like, oh, 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 okay. All right. Never mind. Go ahead. Do what you're doing. It's like, right. And was it, was it that sharper shift in their direction where they kind of went, oh, light bulb moment. This wasn't the right approach. We're going oh, back. Well, it was, it was just a little bit. You know, it was a little bit less um, prescriptive, I would say. Okay. You know, um, I, again, I mean, that was, it's it's not a huge issue as it turns out. I mean, it's been fine. And the people at 343, I would say, on the whole, have been fabulous. Yeah. They're really, really nice people. And I think the bottom line is is that obviously when they took over i suspect that they wanted to sort of claim their turf and say you know it's like there's sure. a new sheriff in town and you know this is this is what we're going to do and i get that I, I understand that completely i ran a theater i walked in and did more or less the same thing it's like well this is what it has been and this is what it's going to be and it, it'll it be a little bit different you may notice you know yeah so. it, it is a chance to kind of reboot that approach slightly uh, yes absolutely um but along the way you know, whenever I do actually get into a booth with any of those people, they're incredibly sweet and they want what everyone wants. They want the best game possible. Right. That's what they want. 
and I've been watching these commercials for Infinite, you've got to remember, I just read lines off a page. Out of context you know, as well. Like totally just, out of context. Yeah. It used to be, again, when Bungie was involved, there would always be a period when they say, Jeff, let, let's, you know, come and look at the artwork and what we're doing. And it was like, right. you know, yeah, jaw yeah. hits the table. And um, that hasn't happened in a while. So I don't, you know, I find out after the fact kind of what happened to the game I narrated. Um, uh, and I occasionally will, you know, pry a clue out of a friend or something who's involved in the game. But or to get a little a little inside something. Yeah, what's happening here? It's like, well, I think you, probably you should know there are zombies. It's like zombies, Zom zombies in the game. Oh, okay. cool. Well, yeah, that's worth knowing. Yeah. That would be why I said zombie killing spree. Okay. Right, yeah. That, that wasn't just them lot. having some fun. Fact, well, but that's the other thing about almost every session I've ever done. At the end of it, they very often give me, you know, things to do that are basically shout outs to their friends or Absolutely. I think they ended up as ringtones. And a lot of them are ones that were very, very silly and funny and, you know, um, went after people who'd worked on the game and stuff. And then a couple of them were things that they tried to sneak in and they you didn't. can't blame them for that, pass. though. I, At I, all. I can, At I can all. understand the sort of like sort of potential for mischief <laughs> with something like that you know and and i think the fact that you're sort of and, it, and it's come across with the way you've interacted with fans on cameo and obviously with the way you've spoken about the community at large you know the yeah. the response you've had the love you've had from the not just the halo community but the wider gaming community has been quite profound um yeah. i think it it speaks to your willingness to play into that fun i think and when you've got oh, no. developers Doing Absolutely. Kind of no, yeah. I, I revel whenever I get something that's just outrageous. It's, you know, you can only say blue team go, red team go, purple right, team go right, so right. many times, you know, blue team has gone, blue team, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes your brain turn to pulp. This, this is the thing. I played the technical tests uh, yeah. last week. Oh, yeah. And uh -huh. I just, I think I just wanted to somewhat shamelessly take the next 10 seconds of this podcast, just to be able to say to you, Jeff Steitzer, that <laughs> off the rack might be the best medal I've ever heard in a Halo game. Just the way you would go off the rack. Off the rack. Yes. And I actually, like I actually clipped a montage of me getting that medal purely because it was so jolly. <laughs> Um, I think that's maybe what I meant by like it, you had kind of like some of the readings you do for some of the lines have that kind of sneer, that snarl to them, which is absolutely really interesting. No, um, one of my favorite lines they they never put in the game, which was "You suck." I <laughs> yeah, love okay. that. I love that. That is, and it's there, like there is a video that's done the rounds on YouTube. I think it may be a family. Somebody got a hold of, some of it kind. somewhere, but yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I was at a friend's yeah. house. That's yeah. right. That's right, and you you were speaking to your career, and you mentioned I think um, uh, Cheney Mania as one. That of the was the other one. Is one medals. of my favorites, and they tried to slip it in, but somebody caught it, and so they oh, said, someone "No, went, no, thanks, no, no." We've got you know our lawyers are busy already, so no, you, you can't do this. But it would have been fun. <laughs> when um, when... Cheney Mania. Oh come yeah, on, come on. Well, and you know what it was for. If you shot your own teammate in the face, then you heard me going, Cheney mania. Like, I mean, you know, that's, it's genius, I thought. I think again. But I didn't make the game, did I? Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Then you get to sort of sit there and be like, well, if it was me. <laughs> just, 
you know but that's that's you know when you when you sneak in medals like cluster luck and doing stuff like that you know i feel like there was a place a, a, an empty slot that both cheney mania and you suck could have uh could have occupied generally when we're in the studio i can tell when something's working when we do a line three times which is how we tend to do it and then you know they they turn off their mic while i'm recording and then they turn it back on and what i hear is laughter you know when i hear right. them howling with laughter right. then it's like okay i thought so too you know <laughs> um i'm glad that they think that because i think i mean for me it's part of what makes doing this after all these years so much fun absolutely you know, is finding that kind of mischievous you know um uh, uh character uh approach to a lot of that stuff so, for sure yeah. and i think that that definitely comes across in when you've played it enough like with the quantity of time on the gamer's side you get yeah. to start you get the repetition a little bit you know you played a few rounds you've you know you've racked out some hours and at that point then those those inevitable favorites drop in to the yes. conversation oh and it's um, it's amazing because you know with the the whole cameo thing that's been happening the people will write out of the, and they'll all say it's like this is the thing that i you know i've heard a lot of people who loved running riot and i didn't remember i'd even said it right you know it's right. like i did oh okay yeah great you know i mean there are ones that i unfreaking believable i have always liked to do because it's sure uh, instantly recognizable double kill triple kill that stuff is fun you know slayer because it's such an so an fun it's, thing to do. with that one it, it seems to be getting longer <laughs> as well which Slayer. I... <laughs> oh yeah yeah no i know well this That's... is what i mean about somebody coming along going you know people got to go home you know it's like yeah that's that's fantastic Slayer. and actually that that's something i wanted to ask you just as a kind of offshoot of that have there sure. ever been moments where uh where that levity in the booth has caused you to break you know have you had those moments of like where you've corpsed in it or do you find yourself able to just deliver the line and then you're you're enjoying it afterwards somebody may know that on the other side i don't have any memory of losing it unless i just said the line so completely wrong misread right. it and then i sort of you know giggle about the fact that i'm an idiot and you know i totally <laughs> screwed up and say me i'm sorry um let's go do it again you know Oh, that's whoops. what I I've remember. Got do, but I've got to exactly, do the Halo voice but, again. But, exactly. But when I'm actually doing the voice, you know, it's like, nah, it's it's pretty Focused. easy to do. Yeah. Interesting. I think so. I think um, so. So uh, now you're going to have all these folks from Bungie and 343 going, oh, he is so full of it. That isn't the way it was <laughs> at all. You know, we could have gotten to do the whole thing in an hour, but he was always laughing. He thought it was There's so 20 funny. takes to get running exactly. right. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. And he can't remember he did it. What a dick. <laughs> that, by the way, this uh, this disgruntled game developer character that we've just invented there. That that's for now. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on, Jeff. <laughs> that's exactly that is like verbatim. That's exactly sure. it's a documentary take. Right. I mean, if you met these people, they all, all male and female, they all sound exactly like that. Yeah, they're talking just, about me. I don't know why. Frankly, they've just had enough. <laughs> <laughs> the story of my life. Yeah. People who've worked with me, they've well, just had enough. Well, <laughs> once again, you've done a beautiful job helping me with my segue here, um, because yes. um, one of the one of the closing questions that we do uh, with all of our new episodes now, all of our new episodes of the podcast, with every guest. We obviously tailor our interview and our conversation to them, 
but we always ask the, sort of the same one or two questions to wrap it up. And one of them is uh, in relation to this idea of legacy. I'm fascinated by the idea of legacy and what that can mean in terms of what we perceive as our own legacy versus what others see of us, because they uh -huh. can invariably be quite different things. And I sure. was wondering for you, not necessarily just as a, a, a performer, it could just be as a human, up to this point, you know, right to, you know, we're recording in beginning of August right now. Um, right. Uh, what do you feel in, in for yourself that you that your legacy is, you know, or, or rather, furthermore from that, what would you like it to be? Well, um, I don't think there's any question what it is. I've been joking about for years the fact that, you know, when I'm gone, it'll be like, you know, the voice of Halo. That I mean, if anybody even notes my passing, that's what they'll say. And, you know, it's a little bit like there are so many people who have passed on and you think, oh, but they did so much more than that Lord of the Rings movie or, right. you know, whatever it was, you know, Alan Rickman, it's like, do you have any idea what he did in classical theater? And of course the answer is no. <laughs> but I mean, that happens, that happens to everybody, you know? Um, so I don't worry about that too much. And, um, you know, I, I, I can't worry about my legacy because then you start second guessing yourself and i've done mm. too much of that in my life anyway shouldn't right. i be doing this and i should be doing this it's like you know it's not a question of should you know it's like what do you have to do what do you need right. to do because that's when you're going to probably end up doing your best work absolutely and that because self-doubt can be so crippling i think as oh well. absolutely absolutely um, and when and when you know it, it they're going to be so many people pushing on you from so many directions and if you let that impact the work you do you know it 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 very likely won't be worth doing at all i think absolutely yeah i agree with that for sure um i'm glad you've spoken to that too because i do think there is that there can be quite an interesting dichotomy between those two things of what what you would want for yourself versus what others see um, but also understanding what's really important. That's actually often the conversations I have when I think about legacy is that what actually right. really counts? What, what is the thing that really matters? I, I would say the thing that really counts in my life, the thing that uh, I have not been terribly good with, but I'm a parent. I've got two grown children, middle-aged children, and they are both of them absolutely remarkable. Um, they're, they right. are funny. They are talented. They are hugely empathetic. They are smart, you know, I, and if, if whatever I had to help them become those people, that is the thing I am proudest of. You know, I, I had an experience years and years ago, I was directing a play and it was not going terribly well. And as sometimes happened, you know, you sort of get into this weird prison in your head of like, you know, you're thinking about all these things. And I was sitting on the couch just, you know, going over, oh, what am I going to do about this? And what? I was just someplace else. And all of a sudden, I felt something. And it was my son, who at that point was maybe four years old, crawling up into my lap. I hadn't been, I hadn't even seen he'd entered the room, right. you know. And I had an epiphany at that moment, not that I necessarily acted on it like I should have, but I went, what the fuck am I worrying about? Right. You know what I mean? This is what's important. And I believe that to this day. You know, one of the you talk about issues and things that the whole issue of climate change is something that has become extremely uh, important 
to me to know more about and try to yeah. do something about because that will affect the world I leave behind me, my children and the grandchildren that come after that. They're the ones who are going to have to live with this horrific mess that we seem intent on living, leaving. So it's like, okay, you know, let's make that sort of what we do now. And that that's the perspective, right? That's what, and yeah. that, having that moment of, and it does start with self-awareness, I think too, um, to, to know ultimately how to recalibrate what's important, I think. Absolutely, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's actually, so the, the final thing then to wrap us up, this uh, extremely jolly episode of Some Drivel is uh, a question that I've been asking Anytime we've had a voice actor, musician, director on the podcast, <clears throat> um, yeah. I've asked this question because I think it's so, uh, I don't think I can predict the answer. And so far I haven't. <laughs> uh, the question simply is um, a dream role that you've never played. level of thought <laughs> i can't even i i can't think of anything uh, um wow. you know the ones no i mean my favorite play and my favorite character are pier gunt but i'm way past the point where i could play <laughs> the young pier gunt and i think that that's important i think that it should be played by one actor there's been a movement to have it played by three and four and six actors it's like no you see you need to see one person played. go through the of their yeah. life and beyond um, that would have been something I would have loved to have done as an actor or a director. Um, other than that, um, there's not much that I feel any urgent need to do. There's no role that I think, oh, I should have given them my, you know, what, Falstaff. I don't know, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I've right. tended to, I've tended to, you know what it is? Here's what it is. I've realized that, Unlike a lot of real actors, and I'm, you know, the older I get, the more I wonder if I really am a real actor. What I, re that I have a certain easy facility to be goofy and not, you know, necessarily feel shame about it. So, uh, yeah, and it's like, well, I don't know. but I think what it is is what I've loved about acting all my life. What I've loved about it was being in a room with a group of knuckleheads who are every bit as ridiculous as I am and laughing our asses off. That's, that's the best part of it for me when we have to actually open and be sort of grown <laughs> up about it. For sure. Not nearly as much fun. It's like, wait a minute, we've got to do this the same way every night? <laughs> for how many weeks? Oh, no. <laughs> Then it becomes it's, it's, hard. You know, being able to, it, it's the process, isn't it? The journey, the, the journey. Bond. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the problem is, is that when you open, the process is sadly, in most instances, over. And it's mm -hmm. like, then, you know, what do you do with all the really good ideas that you have after the show is up? You know, or those moments you go, oh, this is all wrong. And yet we have to do it. And it becomes like this huge boil that gets bigger and bigger Absolutely. and bigger yeah, yeah. with no chance to lance it. You know, it's As, anyway. Yeah, so. for sure. And that that's something actually that I know in my own life. I'm determined to never say the sentence, oh, I wish I'd. And then fill in the gap. Uh, that's Absolutely. something I know I want to avoid. Um, and to be honest, if we're talking bucket list right now, me interviewing Jeff Steitzer. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, let me just. <laughs> um, Ross said, now you can move on to something important. You can get, hey, get on to those really important things. Please. I've just subscribed to myself. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I can't think of a better way uh, to wrap this up on season two, episode two of Some Dribble. Um, I feel like it goes without saying, but in a slightly cliche way, I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Jeff, thank you so, so much uh, for joining me uh, today. Um, this genuinely has been a, an actual treat uh, to be able to unpack your thought process, hear you speak to some fairly bonkers stories as well about your the, the journey that you've taken both in your professional and personal life. Um, and I know uh, that it's a great privilege that I've been able to speak to you today. So, uh, so cheers, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking. It's been my pleasure. Uh, so yeah, so uh, thank you everyone for uh, for tuning in, for listening. You can check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. And of course, we are hosted at our main website, That Hitbox. And we will see you next time.